Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. In this episode, I spoke with Elliot Seibert and Asa Foss from the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. They both work on the Energy Star Homes program, and Elliot actually is a former colleague here at Stephen Winter Associates. They're both very involved in the new uh, Energy Star Next Gen Homes program. And as you'll hear, I mistakenly referred to this as an all-electric program. They corrected me. It's electric forward, but not necessarily all electric. The focus really is on reducing CO2 emissions from new homes, operational CO2 emissions. We'll talk about some of the key features, but briefly, in a nutshell, the requirements for the new program are some added uh, envelope efficiency measures, Energy Star, Energy Star heat pumps for heating and cooling, Energy Star heat pump water heaters for water heating, induction cooktops, uh, and electrical electric vehicle charging infrastructure. This was this episode was pretty cool for me. We're involved in a lot of programs in our work. It was great just to hear the background, the rationale, how this program was developed. It's it's abundantly clear that a great deal of thought and effort went into developing this, um, which, you know, you don't always see in the checklist that you run through while you're trying to certify a building. Uh, it was very cool to hear the thought process on how some of these some of these requirements were developed. Quick disclaimer, Elliot and Asa are expressing their own opinions here, not necessarily uh, any official opinions of EPA or anything like that. I started by asking Elliot for a little background on the Energy Star Homes program itself, not next gen, but the core Energy Star Homes program. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with Energy Star. We've got, uh, you know, great brand recognition. Um, so, but you might think about it as, you know, the little blue sticker that's on your fridge when you go to the big box store. So we've actually had um, a, a similar label for new homes that uh, we've had for 25 years. The program started in 1995. We have, uh, since that time, 2.3 million certified homes have been built as Energy Star. And what that has meant is um, those homes are at least 10% better than code. On average, they're actually more like 20% better than code. So it's a pretty significantly better home from an energy perspective. Um, and in addition to energy efficiency, we are looking at building science, you know, as a whole, you know, kind of a house as a system approach. So the core thing is energy efficiency, but we're also looking at mandatory requirements like, you know, flashing and water management and, you uh, you know, duct leakage and, you know, blower door and all these things that kind of tie in together to make sure that we're doing energy efficiency the right way. So that's really been the core of Energy Star. Um, and up until now, we've had really just a single tier. Your home was either Energy Star certified or it wasn't. Um, and it was a, it was that, that's kind of the Energy Star brand. Um, and, and that's what's changing uh, today. And that's kind of what we're excited to, to talk about on the podcast. One thing I've I've appreciated about Energy Star, and, and I, I you know the first homes I certified as Energy Star was I think probably in two thousand. So it's been a, it's been a while, and mm -hmm. it's changed it's changed a bit since then. Uh, but it it always required. It's not just on paper the, that the 
home looks better. It's not just a model or a look at the specs. I mean, it requires on-site verification of insulation of the you know blower door testing duct blaster testing and then it's that's gotten that's been stepped up over the years i mean verifying, that's right like you said flashing air sealing yeah it's not just a paper exercise yeah. you certainly it starts with you know an energy model and, and you prove it out and you know you can flexibly figure out how you're going to get to your target performance um but like you said i think a lot you know a lot of the value comes in with mandatory at least two inspections to the home during construction by certified raters. This is, you know, the specific thing they're looking for. They're, you know, highly trained to look for the energy efficiency stuff, which is not, you know, theoretically it's part of your code inspection, but code, you know, the code inspectors are looking at life safety first and foremost, and everything else is kind of nice, to, nice to have. Yep. Um, so it's just, it's just an extra level of assurance that the, this stuff is done correctly in that house. And, you know, a lot of this stuff can't be necessarily inspected or uh, will never be upgraded afterwards. Yeah. Right. right. So when right. you're talking about the insulation in the walls, you're probably never going to go into that, you know, wall again, or if you will, it'll be 50 years from now. So yeah. that's kind of why it's so critical to get it right at the time of construction. That's the right time to be looking at it. So, and next gen is moving towards all electric. It seems, it seems to me from what I've seen, um, Asa, do you want to give some background, I guess, for the rationale or why, why NextGen came around? Yeah, so as Elliot mentioned, Energy Stars really focused on, you know, at least 10% energy savings over the state's energy code. And you, know, you add in you know, some of the core, you know, comfort systems like ventilation for you know, your local exhaust for kitchen and baths, as well as ventilation for like your whole dwelling unit. Um, but we wanted for NextGen to like expand beyond just energy efficiency to look more specifically at how new construction can achieve greater operational emission savings in order to you know specifically you know make a bigger stand against climate change. Um, so so that's the goal was to you know first and foremost like find a way where we can get new construction to achieve significant emissions reductions. And so. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, going going all electric is is it's a been a push in the you know the green efficient circles that we all work in, and it's I guess is there is there at this point with the grid mix all over the country is there definitely a big advantage emissions wise to going all electric everywhere in the country at this point? Yeah, so we've done some initial emissions and energy modeling on the next gen program. And what we're seeing is nationally compared to the 2021 uh, residential energy code. Um, so if a home was going to be using, you know, gas, space, and water heating, and again built to that 2021 code levels, if they instead, you know, do next gen and switch to an Energy Star heat pump for space heating, Energy Star heat pump for water heating, as well as um, you know, meeting our, our energy star criteria of 10% efficiency improvements. So if you do those like three big things right there, then you're naturally looking at 49% emissions reductions, uh, which is a big number, again, over a pretty darn stringent code. Um, you know, and if we're looking more specifically at the Northeast, you know, we're looking at savings of, you know, over 40% in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware region, 64% in New York oh, wow. State, and 58% in New England. 
Okay. And the reason that those numbers vary, uh, number one, it's a little bit has to do with the uh, climate zone. So the colder you get, the the more the emission savings. That's pretty common for Energy Star in general. Like it's you get better efficiency and better emissions reductions in heating dominated areas. But the bigger driver beyond that is the grid mix. So the cleaner the electricity grid, the more the savings. But the cool yeah. thing that we found is that even in states with the dirtiest grids, uh, there are significant emissions reductions, uh, okay. even today. Uh, so we hear, you know, from some of our stakeholders like, hey, like we're waiting for the grid to get cleaner before, you know, we switch out to heat pumps. But according to our initial analysis, like there's not a place in the country where it doesn't make sense from an emissions reduction standpoint to switch to efficient heat pumps for space and water heating. Right on. Cool. And, you know, I'll just, I'll just clarify, Rob, that a um, couple things. You know, the first thing is that this Energy Star Next Gen is going to be this new level of recognition on top of the base program. So homes can still uh, meet the base program. Nothing's changing with that. So if you know and love Energy Star new homes, um, you know, nothing's changing. But if you're ready to kind of take this next step, then that's what Energy Star Next Gen is going to be. So it'll be an additional kind of label sticker on that home. Gotcha. And then the other thing that I'll say is it's not it's not specific it's electric forward, but I would say it's not all electric necessarily. So what we're more looking at is not saying you know we can't have gas in these homes. What we're saying is what technologies do have to be in here. And, you know, we can get into the specifics, right? But it's basically, we know it's going to be energy efficiency, number one. We know it's going to be efficient heat pumps. And then it's going to be EV, you know, charging capability. Um, and then induction cooking for the consumer amenity, largely. So you put all these together and you say, this is the stuff that has to be in there. We're not saying you can't have um, a gas, you know, a vented gas fireplace if you want that. Or you can't have, you know, a, a gas grill out back you know, for, for your cookouts, um, you know, but we are saying you have, we know that these parts are the key and, and that's really what we want to be, get folks directed towards working on getting those, integrating those. Cool. And Asa, I'm impressed you had numbers, emission numbers at your fingertips <laughs> was, but I kind of interrupted you. Was there anything else you were going to say on the, on the background or the kind of rationale for the, for the program? No, I, I think Elliot like hit on like the the rationale like and background like reasonably well. Um, like the the key for us is focusing on what needs to be included in a home, okay. not what should be excluded. Um, so we've actually had a lot of success talking with a really wide swath of stakeholders uh, and gotten their support behind the Energy Star Next Gen program, specifically because we're not you know banning gas. Um, gotcha. And I would okay. say like one area that they're like really intrigued by is that we're allowing gas backup for the the space heating. Uh, so for right. for the building community that isn't ready yet to do all electric, um, in particular on the space heating side, you know, we, we do have this option for them to, you know, keep gas as their backup space heater on those coldest days. Yep. Um, so we're hoping that this pragmatic approach is able to, you know, inch the industry forward. Um, and, and that's really been, you know, one of the strengths, I would say, of the Energy Star program. I'm relatively new to the team. I've only been there for two years. But just everything about the program is like, what is 
doable today. Um, it, it's always been an eye towards, you know, achievable steps that the mass market should be able to do. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, we'll come back to heating, which is that's a very interesting point. And I like Elliot. I like the electric forward <laughs> phrasing versus all electric. I definitely appreciate that. Uh, so the, the kind of the core requirements for achieving next gen, I think there are like five. The first one is just overall efficiency. I think envelope yep. load reduction. Um, Elliot, what do you have to do beyond basic energy star on, on that front? Yeah, the the main requirement it's I kind of think of it as a prereq, which is that you meet Energy Star, uh, normal Energy Star, quote unquote, uh, version three point two, which is our highest tier. So we have these different tiers that are responsive to the different generations of Energy Code. So the twenty twenty one IECC uh, is what spurred version three point two, and so it's it's intended to be ten percent better than twenty twenty one IECC. I mean, the 2021 ICC already is like a pretty okay envelope, right? Um, we're, we're not actually seeing it. We're maybe just seeing it start to roll out into some states, you know, now or soon. Um, and then we're beating that by 10%. Um, the other thing that's unique about version 3.2 for us is we've we've increased our thermal backstop. So what that means is uh, we're saying no matter what you do to kind of trade off your energy performance, your envelope at least needs to be at the 2021 IACC code level. And this will apply. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, we're saying start with the envelope. That's the most important thing. And that's going to apply even if you're not in a 2021 IACC state. So you can't trade off with lower envelope specs with more efficient equipment or right. stuff like that. You can't that. just you say we're going to yeah. do the equipment because, you know, we're going to get to it, but we're asking for the equipment anyways when we get to next gen, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, we're, you know, it's it's a way to kind of protect and say, you know, the envelope. Again, it goes back to that the envelope's going to be there for 50, you know, 100 years in that house. Yep. So that's, that's the number one thing for us. Um, you know, the other thing I would say about it is, is just kind of why that's so important, which is that uh, we're, we're trying to build a, a Yeti cooler kind of, right? Like we, we need to build this home with extremely low loads um, in order for the other technologies to work. So if you don't do that as a starting point, you're not going to get the performance out of these very advanced, you know, very smart, very high tech systems that, you know, we'll get to next. They want, they want to kind of just sip energy, right? They don't, they're not a blast furnace that just wants to be, you know, turned on at full blast. Um, they're not going to perform as well in that situation. And the other thing it allows you to do, if you do have those, you know, that Yeti cooler kind of effect is all of a sudden now the house has the ability at least to be more responsive. If you're hooked up with your utility and you're getting those signals from the utility of, hey, you know, we're peaking. It's a really cold day. We're hitting an electric peak on the grid. We'd like you to, you know, maybe help us out here. The home can say, okay, that's fine. I'll turn off my heating for a half an hour, 45 minutes. Like, not a big deal, you know, and the, you might not even notice it. Um, it just kind of happens in the background. So it's kind of, it's really, you know, it's really kind of an enabler. And that's why I, I say it's, it's, it's the prereq. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. I mean, once you get the loads low, you have so much leeway in how you meet those loads. Um, comfortably efficiently exactly yeah yep. and it, it just you know and beyond beyond performance it's comfort and that, and that's really at the end of the day what the homeowner is going to care about most and one of the nice things are 
if you're going to be doing Energy Star version 3.2, which again, as Elliot mentioned, is the prereq for next gen, you know, starting January 1st, 2025, any home or apartment that's sold or leased that wants to take advantage of the $2,500 45L tax credit, they're going to have to do version 3.2. So like, okay. that's not that long away. So like, there's gotcha. going to be a pretty big carrot to get you from where you're at to the Energy Star version 3.2. So like, again, even though like that is not an insignificant efficiency improvement, our expectation is that with this additional funding from 45L that um, a, a good majority of the above code market is going to be there in the next few years. Gotcha. Yeah, we should make sure to put some links to that in the show notes. Uh, that is important info. So on the moving on to the heating and cooling system, we mentioned AC mentioned heat pumps. Um, I think if I I think that there are explicitly Energy Star heat pumps required. Is that right? Yep. So we've got a couple of requirements around heat pumps. So number one it has to be Energy Star certified. Uh, number two, it has to be multi-speed. So either like two or variable. Uh, is this for air source or ground source? Either uh, that either is for way? air source. So okay. like ground source, we're not going to have that requirement. Okay. Um, for ground source, if you're doing that, then you're going to be good. Uh, they tend to be, you know, multi-speed anyways. Um, uh, the next requirement for heat pumps is that they need to be connected capable. So they're able to participate in demand response events if the occupant so chooses. Um, but they need to have that capability either by being uh, EPA certified as connected or by having an Energy Star smart thermostat, which enables that demand responsiveness to occur. And then the final is for projects that are in climate zones five through eight or like cold climates. Um, they have to meet the Energy Star cold climate certification. It's like that's a new designation from Energy Star. Um, yeah. It was just recently rolled out. And um, starting early 2023 uh, on our Energy Star product finder, you should be able to search for cold climate certified heat pumps. Okay. and start seeing like a pretty decent list of compliant products. Uh, is that also just for the air source? There's yes. not a separate, yeah. Yeah, I there's not a ground source separate. requirement for that. Yeah. Uh, but that That's is for ducted and ductless uh, okay. air source heat Good. pumps. Yep. So this is, this is interesting. So you're actually, I, when I first started doing Energy Star, it baffled quite a few clients, builders, that you could have an Energy Star home that mm -hmm. doesn't require you know, Energy Star windows and Energy Star refrigerator and Energy Star heating and cooling system that it was, you know, you could do trade offs to get where you needed to be overall. But yeah. this is this is an explicit requirement for only in cold climates that you need an Energy Star cold climate certified air source heat pump. Yeah, like what you'll see, like with our set of requirements that we have for next gen is that, you know, it's the Energy Star efficiency baseline plus Energy Star products on there. Okay. Um, gotcha. uh, instead of having that, you know, performance target of percent improvement over code, um, you know, we're not saying you have to be 40% emissions reduced over mm -hmm. the code home. We're saying you have to do these four specific technologies and then design and install them properly. You know, because as I'm sure, you know, you've talked about before in your podcast, like the design and installation of the heat pumps for space heating 
and heat pumps for water heating is so important. Oh my God. So like we, we design our requirements around some of those best practices. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't even want to go there because we'll spend But it's, it's a really good point, Rob. And actually, I mean, I'll just say it's not just cold climate heat pumps, right? It's, it's actually all heat pumps need to be Energy Star certified. And, oh, this, okay, and okay. the same thing when gotcha. we get to the water heaters, it's going to be all yeah. water heaters need to be Energy Star certified. And part of that is because it is a cutting edge program, um, we want to make sure that the consumer is going to have a good experience with it. And I think that's, that's really where the benefit of that Energy Star product spec shines. Because kind of like our homes program, it's not just about um, the efficiency of it. That's the core, but then it's usually it's all this other um, performance and amenity stuff that goes around it for that it's going to work well. Um, okay, and you know we can talk more about that with maybe like the heat pump water heater, but um, uh, you know we felt like in this there are there are downsides to tying it to the product certification, which is that sometimes you have some product availability questions, and um, you know the a, a, a things a items listed and it goes off the list and those kind of things. Um, so we have kind of process ways to work around some of that stuff and help our, you know, partners, you know, be able to plan for it. Um, but in this case, I think the, the benefits outweigh, you know, the downsides of tying it specifically to the product specs. And that's, again, just going to make sure that we're not just saying, Hey, go get this. And then people don't know what they're getting into and they get a bad product and they have a bad experience with this new technology. Yep, you've uh, you've given it a bit of thought. <laughs> it's pretty clear. <laughs> so, but on the heating and cooling, and AC, you mentioned this before, or one of you mentioned this before. You don't need that's the heat pump doesn't need to be the sole source of heat in home. You can have auxiliary, which frankly you'd need in some climate zone seven and eight applications. Yeah, like you know, a majority of heat pumps are going to have some type of auxiliary heat anyways, right? So they're going to have either the electric resistance coil. You know, for those coldest days, or in in our case, you can do you know dual fuel, so have a gas backup for it. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, in our work, I would say that that's not the majority, but it's certainly certain. You know, ductless heat pumps don't generally have, and uh, and the small ducted systems for, but that's more multifamily for yeah. yeah for big central, bigger central single family stuff, it's much more common. Yeah. All right, that's good to know. You need a heat pump, but it doesn't have to do it all. So moving on to water heating, which also can be a little more challenging in colder mm-hmm. climates, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, Elliot, what are the requirements for water heating? Uh, yep. So um, we require an Energy Star certified heat pump water heater. Uh, so that's going to be, um, you know, typically an integrated unit that's got the um, kind of all built into one package. Um, and then we also require the connected criteria so that it has the ability to respond to a demand response event. Um, and that, that might be actually in a lot of homes kind of the number one opportunity for that um, to be able to do this kind of load shifting, um, you know, mm. flexible response that we're going to need out of next the next generation of housing stock. Um, you know, because you can preheat it. And a lot of times if you look at, you know, when the water, hot water use happens versus when the peak events are, they're, they're not particularly aligned. So there's a lot of ability to kind of preheat it and just say, you know, don't do any water heating during this, you know, one or two hours. Um, 
And then, um, and then we also have some um, sizing requirements to make sure that we've got uh, a, a big enough tank because usually, because it's a little bit of, you know, to get, again, to get the peak efficiency out of it, um, it can take a little bit longer to, to heat up again. Um, and so we want to make sure you have a big enough tank for your family. And so if you're using yeah. like a 40 gallon tank, you're probably going to want to be looking at like a 50 or a 55. And if you were using a 50 or, you know, then you probably want to be looking like an 80 gallon is kind of the rough rule of thumb. So we have a, we have a table with, um, depending on the number of bedrooms you have to make sure you've got a big enough one. You know, again, we don't want, it's one of those examples. We don't want to build or cheapen out on this. And then a consumer has a bad experience of it and they're turned off this technology you know, now based on that, that, the bad experience. Yeah. And on that point, um, we also have another requirement that for any heat pump installed, uh, in occupiable space that they have to be rated at 55 decibels or less. Ah, Again, we don't want to have a bad consumer experience where their first time with a heat pump water heater, it's a loud one that, um, they just hate. Well, you definitely see that. And and 55 decibels is still pretty loud if it's, you know, near your bedroom. But, you know, there's not much equipment that's much quieter than that yet. Uh, so, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And and one of the, the goals of NextGen is to be a little bit more nimble than the core Energy Star program. You know, like okay. Energy Star, we don't really change unless there's a code update. Uh, they're they're very small tweaks that we make to to make the program a little bit more efficient. With NextGen, since you know we are trying to be, you know, walking the line between pragmatism and cutting edge, uh, we're going to be looking at the spec every year to to see you know where we can you know make some improvements. Um, so you know if we see that there are a substantial number of quieter water heaters, you know, then that would be a really obvious place to you know bring that number down from 55 to 52 or whatever the availability says. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I mean, heat pump water heaters are, we've been working with them again. I've been working with them for over 20 years and they can work great, you know, in basements of single family homes, even in the Northeast where I am, it's usually fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Garages in Orlando. Yep. Usually fine. In a closet, if you don't have a garage or a basement, uh, it's a little more problematic. Yeah, um, definitely. So it's tricky. So how about so you mentioned the integrated tank, but there are split or mono block mm-hmm. there that are Energy Star mm-hmm. certified. Yep. Yeah, where it's those would be um, those would be great. You know, those those are more limited right now in terms of product availability. But I think that could be an answer for a lot of those kind of situations where you don't have a good place to put it. You don't have that basement or the garage that you can stick it in. Um, You know, I think that solves the noise and it solves the question of uh, where is the heat coming from? Yeah. Right. That's a question that a lot of people ignore or don't get. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll see. I think we will see more of those units, you know, come become available over time, especially in smaller dwelling units, because like you said, single family with basements is easy, but even townhouses are tricky. And, you know, the smaller the unit, you know, as you get to more dense multifamily, just the water heating placement, if you're talking about like unitary systems, gets more and more challenging. How about central systems for multifamily? That, they can they I, can do it. Uh, are sure, there like, Energy Star certifications for twelve ton 
air to water heat pumps for central systems? Um, I would say we're kind of waiting uh, to to see that system in, in practice. <laughs> I yeah. think yeah. we would be totally open to any solutions that present themselves in the multifamily space. Gotcha. You know, okay. uh, again, I have no problem admitting that water heating, heat pump water heating and multifamily is going to be the biggest barrier here for multifamily projects. We, yeah, there's it's, no question about it. It's it's tough. I mean, that we've seen some good case studies, and then we've seen some really not good case studies. <laughs> it's, right. It's it. We're lots of our projects are trying to trying to do it, and it, you just got to be very thoughtful and very careful. It's there's no cookie cutter solution. Absolutely. You uh, know, and at the same time, though, I, you know, so I think we're I think we're definitely looking at a smaller slice of the multifamily project okay. types that even could kind of consider it at this point. But at the same time, like there are situations where you could put a closet on a balcony and have it vented to outdoors, you know, to put a water depending heater on in, the climate, yeah. depending on the climate, you know, um, or you could do it, uh, do the kind of hallway system that's like that, where you vent it, you put the closet next to the hallway, you vent it out to the hallway, yep. you have that conditioned, you know, as a central thing. Um, so, you know, we, we, uh, we want to make it available to multifamily and, and, you know, make it an option for those people that have a situation where they can participate. Um, and then, gotcha. uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's well acknowledged that for situations where you have a big central system, we don't have a great answer to be perfectly honest with you right now. Yep. Nobody does. I, I agree. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Um, so on the appliance front, uh, it seems like the the key mandate above and beyond, you know, what's in what's in the base level of Energy Star is cooking requirements, Asa. Yeah. So like the first three requirements that we've mentioned, so like the efficient envelope and overall efficiency, it's base heating and water heating. Like those are driving these like substantial emissions reductions. Um, our, our final two requirements are more like enabling technologies for decarbonization. So our final okay. two requirements are uh, induction and electric cooking and EV charging infrastructure. Um, so in our background research, you know, we are finding that, you know, home buyers are like really attached to their gas cooktops. Surprise, surprise. Um, but there is now like a technology that is better than gas um, for, for cooking, which is induction cooktops. Um, so we wanted, you know, since the program is called Next Gen, you know, we wanted to have, you know, a technology that is visible to, you know, the occupants, to the homeowners, to the apartment dwellers. Um, people don't see their space heating or water heating equipment, right? Like a lot of people don't even know like what fuel type they have. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if it's electric or gas, like they're not going to know unless the system's not working. Yeah. Uh, that's not true for their cooking, right? Most people like will know like what type of you know oven or stove that they have, even if they don't use it that often. So like that was really like a big rationale for requiring induction cooktops. Um, we will hopefully knock on wood, you know, have an Energy Star uh, certification for induction cooktops pretty soon. Uh, okay. uh, the products team is working on that like as we speak. Uh, so at some point in 2023, we can expect there to be some type of um, designation for, for those, which will be awesome. Cool. Uh, but we really do think that um, when 
people are exposed to induction cooktops because a lot of people just aren't familiar with them at all. Um, that they will, you know, be really pleased and like think of it not just as a viable substitute for gas, but like a substantial improvement to it. Um, there's a lot of benefits, you know, in addition to, you know, boiling water in half the time, which is cool, but, you know, like, because they're cool of the touch, you know, you don't have that burn or scald risk, which is, you know, important for folks with families and young kids. Uh, frankly, because they're cooler, they're easier to clean, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've got more precise temperature control, which means there's less of a chance that you'll have a boil over. So, that's less like you'll have to clean you know, something, <laughs> which is great. And, you know, like I have a little, you know, portable induction cooktop in my house because I have a gas oven and stove, you know. So, like when I was going down um, this next-gen development with the team, um, seeing a lot of research on, you know, health risks to gas, you know, so like that really motivated me to get uh, an induction cooktop. Um, so it's just like a little portable one burner that we have in our counter. And we use that like way more than our, our gas range right now. Oh, interesting. Um, not just because of, you know, lower pollutants, but because it's just an easier thing to cook on. Like you set the number and it stays there. Whereas, yeah. you know, with gas, like you got to like adjust the fob here, there. Give you it know, the old to, like, eyeball. Get, yeah, exactly. Flame, yeah. So, like, we're able to, like, get it exactly where we need to and, like, do, like, a simmer uh, for, you know, anything. You know, oftentimes mac and cheese for the kids because that's the only thing that they eat. <laughs> but it's so much easier to make mac and cheese now. <laughs> so, so like, you know, quality of life improvement right there. Nice. And that the health issues with, with, you know, we were talking about this when we were talking about doing this podcast. We talked about it's... It's always surprised me that, you know, we have things like vent-free gas fireplaces are, are, you know, horrible from an IAQ standpoint and banned from a lot of programs. You know, vent-free combustion appliances don't have them, but gas ranges are okay. Gas ranges and gas ovens are okay. They get a pass. And it's it always puzzled me. And, you know, there's... I'm sure we folks can get in touch with you, Asa, for a lot of, for a lot of info on what the health impacts really are on this. I know you've dug into it quite a bit. Yeah. So what we know is that you know all cooking you know gives off pollutants, you know ultrafine particulates, formaldehyde, and um, people don't often use their kitchen range hoods, you know, e even when they are ducted to the exterior. Um, so, like, we want to have those, you know, vented kitchen range hoods, uh, but because they're only pulling, you know, a fraction of the, the pollutants out, you know, that fraction, you know, is going to vary substantially based on, like, the effectiveness of the capture efficiency and if people, frankly, even turn on the range hood, yeah, if they remember that's... or if they're not too loud or whatnot. So, yep. so, that's a challenge. But then when you add, you know, your gas fuel, you're adding carbon monoxide and even more so nitrogen dioxide to like your list of pollutants from cooking. Um, and there's a lot of scientific evidence that is able to point to higher levels in homes that have gas stoves and ovens, um, as well as associated health outcomes. Um, I, I think the, the hardest number that we've seen is that children living in homes with gas stoves have a 42% increased risk of having asthma. And this is according to like a meta-analysis of 19 studies. Um, that's, that's not insignificant. <laughs> yeah, that's not. That's not. 
So induction ranges required. You could still get away get away with a gas dryer if you wanted, right? I mean, you could still put a gas dryer in a next gen home. Yeah, we don't say anything okay. on some of these other smaller users. So yeah, you can have a gas fireplace, gas dryer. Okay. Um, okay. Just it's a not a big enough driver of emissions for us to make a statement on it. You know, I, I think pragmatically, right, uh, right. people aren't going to have, you know, electric for space and water heating and cooking and then bring gas into a home just for a fireplace and a gas dryer. Like that's just yeah. too expensive with the the hookup fees, with the monthly service fees, all of that. It, that's just yeah. not going to happen. I mean, maybe in an existing home where it's already there, like that might be there. Maybe if they're in going to be in a substantially colder climate that they want to have gas for their backup heat, they might do it. But like, again, like that's not where we're seeing the numbers, you know? So by getting like the major end users, you know, to be electric, there's going to be a massive economic uh, motivation just to not have gas in that home. It, it makes tons of sense. Anyways, savings up front. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll just clarify that, uh, I think you were talking about in general ASA with existing homes, but I'll just clarify that the Energy Star program and the next gen are definitely designed for new homes. Oh yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, good distinction. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the last big requirement is EV charging, and what Elliot, what exactly is required there? Do you have to put a charger in? Do you have to have capacity for a charger? Mm -hmm. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's there's a couple different options um, because there's just a range of scenarios that people are going to have. Um, but just to kind of step back in terms of what we're trying to accomplish is that we we want a homeowner to be able to make a confident buying decision the next time they're buying that car that they've got a place to plug it in at home. Because okay. even if that's, you know, I think it's still kind of uh, to be determined where most charging is going to happen. Um, in most scenarios, but I think you at least need a place to plug it in at home um, and have that option. So, th so that's what we want. You know, you go to the dealer, you're like, "Oh yeah, cool. I should at least be looking at an EV because you know I know that I can. I know that I'm not going to have to like call the electrician and you know have this like massive uh... you know project to like get the charging installed." Um, so that's kind of what we're we're trying to get to. Um, so the specific requirements are. Um, if you have a single family detached home and you've got a garage or like a parking pad, you know, dedicated parking pad, what we're saying is you need a 240 volt, 40 amp powered outlet near that location, you know, in the garage, you know, on the wall of the house, you know, outside near the pad, you know, whatever. Um, and what that allows you to do is um, you could install a wall charger later very easily. Uh, if you if you want that kind of super integrated, um, tucked away, you know, look um, and, and amenity. Um, actually, you know, all of the EVs really come with a mobile charger out of the out of the gate um, that you could just pop in the trunk. Um, so if you're okay, just kind of plugging and unplugging that every time, you can actually just plug those directly into that powered outlet directly. So you wouldn't need any additional equipment. So you know, it's it's that you know from day one you can charge your your EV, and that's what you that's what you're going to be able to. Um, you know, again, kind of give you that that buying confidence. When it gets to multifamily, then we we have some more options. 
Okay. So you can you can do that, and there might be scenarios where that makes sense to do powered outlets, right? Think about like maybe right. a small like condo or something where everybody has a dedicated spot. I think yep. that would be the right option. Yep. But there's other scenarios where it's a mid-rise or high-rise building and maybe underground parking or there's a parking structure um, or something like that. And um, uh, not every, you know, there aren't dedicated spaces uh, or maybe it's, it's mixed or whatever. Um, so in that case, what we're saying is there have to be a dedicated number of shared chargers installed. So we're th- you know, think about like the kind of more commercial chargers they they might you know they might have a little fob on it or they might charge you you know to do it that's fine but the point is you've got some spots you know with those dedicated chargers like today you're already seeing that in some apartment buildings you're certainly seeing it in you know grocery stores parking lots and you know tar- yeah. target parking lots and those kind of things so that's what we're talking about in that case are, are there fractions on the multifamily side this if every occupant Got an electric car. Would there have to be capacity to, to charge an electric car for every tenant? Yeah. Or? Yeah. There are fractions. Okay. Uh, we kind of landed at 10% as a starting okay. point. So you take all the spots, all the parking spots that you're providing and divide by 10. And that's how many char- of the chargers you have to provide. You can okay. do some chargers gotcha. to kind of have like two plugs. And so that's fine. You can count both as long as it's covering two spots, you know? Okay. Um, yep. And that's the smart way to do it. And then it's kind of intelligently controls where the power goes. And so it can kind of reduce some of your infrastructure costs. Um, But yeah, and and then, you know, I think there's certainly the expectation that over time, you're probably going to have to provide more and more as you have more, you know, residents that are having those. Once you have the power to the parking garage, it's a lot easier to expand it than it is to put it in the first time. You know, so that's part okay. of the thinking is if we can get kind of a foothold of the power infrastructure out there and the conduit and everything, then it's easier to kind of fish more, you know, more lines out uh, over time as you need it. So there are connectivity requirements for heat pumps and water heating. Anything there's, there's not on this because you actually you only need an outlet. So if you don't put in a charger, you don't have to have a connectivity, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, because okay. because of that. Um, Prime, you know, again, the I think the primary initial market will be the single family. So that's that's um, be, because we're not actually saying you need to put a charger in. Um, there's not. There is. I will say there is an Energy Star product spec for wall chargers. So okay. I think if folks are, um, some builders will install those out of the gate for sure because they're a nice selling feature, um, and you know they're not that expensive. And I think if you've got a, the kind of home buyer that might already have an EV or be looking at a EV, that's it's it's a really nice stop on the home tour, the model gotcha. home tour, right? At least as maybe an upgrade option that they could go ahead and have you install. So, um, so folks should definitely look at the Energy Star spec that does include those kind of uh, connected criteria options, um, and it also makes sure like the standby power, you know, you're not going to have big vampire loads, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, so for cool. the for the multifamily housing or the shared parking, um, like Elliot mentioned, you have to have 10% of your spaces have a uh, EV charger there. So the requirements there is a level two charger and it has to be an Energy Star certified charger for those multifamily spaces. Oh, I see. Okay. So like cool. where you have to do it for next gen, it has to be an Energy Star certified charger. And gotcha. we do have an asterisk that it's capped at five. You know, so for like a, a really big parking garage, it's not a lot. Um, our, our thinking there is that if there's a visual demonstration that there are chargers there and people want more, uh, it will be easier to expand. Uh, uh, 
So okay. like, again, as, as Elliot mentioned, since we're a national program and there's a lot of, you know, our numbers, you know, down in the South where, you know, EV charging isn't quite as uh, prevalent yet as the Northeast. We didn't want to have a prohibitively high number um, because okay. uh, we have a requirement that 20% of spaces also have to be EV capable, which means having, you know, conduit run, you know, to towards them. Um, so with, you know, some EV chargers already there and having, you know, additional conduit, it should be like relatively, you know, inexpensive and unobtrusive to add additional like charging infrastructure. Cool. So it's, Man, yeah, it's a lot of thought. Yeah, a lot into of thought went into <laughs> it. It's, it's a little bit complicated, you know, just like the different mix and match approaches we have yeah. here. Um, but yeah. I would say at the end of the day, like for the EV charging in particular, like we wanted to had some minimal requirements that made sense on a national basis. Like local areas can like definitely add more. We're not saying you have to cap it at that. You know, hopefully like people will do more, you know, if if it makes sense in their market. Um, but we didn't want to have like, for example, like without the cap of five, you know, like, EV chargers like can get expensive if you have to put in 30 or 40, you know, for example, yeah, we didn't want to so. have that limit people's ability to do next gen and put in, you know, those energy star heat pumps for space and water heating. So it really is, you know, that trade off of, you know, how much do we focus on, you know, the operational emissions reductions versus, you know, the transportation emissions reductions. Yeah. So, like we think that this is a good first step. So, so big picture, is this, is this program, is this done? Is this launched? Can you get a can you get a next gen certified home now? So we, we have the spec released. We released that in May. You know, after going up for public comment, um, we have not fully launched the program yet. So while okay. people can look at it, uh, plan for it, uh, you can't certify to it yet. So like timing, um, right now we're a little bit beholden to the energy modeling software companies. They have to integrate, uh, you know, Energy gotcha. version 3.2 into their software still. And they need to integrate, you know, the ability to print certificates and labels for next gen. So we're hoping that the majority of, you know, software companies will have uh, next gen ready for, you know, prime time early to mid 2023. So like, that's our, our path. Okay. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, again, the specifications out there, uh, energystar.gov slash nextgenhomes, uh, you can go and look at it. It's currently in the form of a one-page radar field checklist. Um, we've been talking to a lot of, you know, policymakers and utilities who are looking at, you know, integrating this into like different incentive programs. You know, that'll take a few years, you know, to, to go into effect. So I got an email, yeah. I got an email this week from the, can, I'm, I live in Connecticut. Connecticut new construction programs, next gen is is a line item in their plans for next year. So people people are paying attention. Yeah, we uh, we're really excited about this program. Um, awesome. It, it's the first you know federal program specifically dedicated to operational decarbonization in uh, the residential new construction place. So like yeah. it's it's good to be first, uh, but also <laughs> like everybody like seems to you know be aligned behind, you know, our approach of focusing on the big things and being pragmatic. And you can always build off of it and do more. Uh, but in terms of, you know, your first step in this space, uh, 
I would say like we feel pretty darn comfortable that we are close to where we need to be. <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned what the the core document now is a Raider Raider checklist. I have to ask on behalf of all the Raiders that I work with, what other is there a lot of extra work for Raiders? I mean, it sounds we don't think so. I mean, because okay. if you're looking at it, you know, you're going to be looking at your space heating and water heating already. Yeah, um, you already have to check all that. Yeah. You're going to check a box for induction. Uh, you know, the okay. one additional measure to look at, you know, is is there, you know, the EV charging features in there. Uh, you know, again, in talking with software companies, like they are already thinking about putting in some of these like new line items for like... Uh, demand response ready heat pump water heaters, demand response ready like heat pumps, like these additional like data points. So like we're again like aligned on that, which again is like really exciting for us. Um, I would say like the one area that is gonna require more work for the energy raters is on the heat pump installation. So uh, we didn't touch on this earlier, but like this is a, okay. a pretty big difference between next gen and the core energy start program. So, like for the Core Energy Star program, uh, there are two paths for verifying the HVAC design and installation. You know, you can do like the legacy uh, contractor credential or like the HQUIDO approach, uh, or you can do uh, HVAC grading, or we call that Track A now. So, where the rater verifies, you know, the design and installation of like key components of the heating and cooling system. So, for Energy Star Core. You have the options for next gen because you know heat pumps for space and space heating and cooling. You know the design installation is even more important than for you know gas heating. You have to do the HVAC grading or track A approach. So that means for any energy raters out there, if you've not looked at you know becoming qualified and comfortable for HVAC grading, you need to get on that ASAP. Um, okay. The okay. the benefit on top of, you know, a better performing heating and cooling system is that projects can get ERI points for good installation. So, you know, as we're talking about like more efficient levels and requirements for the core energy start program, getting, you know, one or two or four ERI points is becoming at a premium. It's like All this right. is, you know, almost like a, a freebie way to earn your builders and developers some ERI points. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, interesting. Good distinction. I thought your answer was going to be no. It's just yeah, check a few boxes. It's <laughs> a, a little bit more nuanced than that. I yeah. mean, it's check a few boxes, but <laughs> yeah. But one of the boxes is it is you know in all fairness it's one it's one page. The checklist is one page. Plus, you know, if you've if you're familiar with our program requirements, we also have a page of footnotes. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's right. Um, but um, but yeah, and, and most of the requirements are straightforward. And I would say, you know, this is an example of it's a it's a future facing program. You know, I think yeah. it's ready right now, but it is definitely a roadmap, and I think it's it's kind of pointing the way to you know maybe five years in the future um, in terms of how we think a lot more people are going to be building. Um, so this would be an example. I think everybody's going to move to HVAC grading. Over the next five years, okay. because instead of just being a paperwork exercise where you make sure the contractor is credentialed and they have to do a training and you know all that all that jazz and you know that's good that's better than nothing, um, but now we're actually doing a performance test with HVAC rating. So it's the difference between if you think about like a visual verification of duct leakage, 
versus actually testing it. And that's the difference. And that's the kind of... So, you you know, yes, it takes a little bit more time, but you get a lot more value out of it as well. That builder gets a lot more assurance that their system's actually working right. They've got, you know, a second kind of opinion on it. They're not just taking the HVAC contractor's word for it. Um, so, and you get the ERI points to boot. Um, and so, cool. I think that'll kind of help um, make some of the economics of it work. You know, because in, instead of some other measure that you would have had to buy, you know, pay for you can pay for that extra testing time. So that's that quite often our last question is if we were to talk again in 5 years, what do you think what do you think we'd be talking about? And Elliot, you started you started in on that that did I hear you right that in 5 years you think the next gen will be kind of the standard for Energy Star or I won't put words in your mouth. I'll let, I'll let you answer. <laughs> what do you think we'd be talking about in five years? I, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, we kind of see NextGen as a testing ground for this for these kind of technologies and this tech. Um, I think it'll be a thing where we are adding new tech into it. Um, I think it would be interesting in five years, we might be talking about doing some of this as a performance-based approach instead of- I was going to ask that. And I decided not to, <laughs> but I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you mentioned it. Yeah, I mean, no commitments, but there is a CO2 index out now. Um, you know, I think we're still kicking the tires on it and, and getting a comfort level with it and an intuition. Um, but I think that's sending the right signals at the very least. It's sending it's sending the same signals that we're trying to with with our prescriptive requirements right now. I think that would be okay. interesting to look at. Um, and then I think, uh, on the other hand, I think we could see bringing some of these down into the main program, you know? And, um, you know, I think by five years from now, I think I think we probably will be asking the question of, should the the core Energy Star program be evolving um, to, to, you know, maybe not, maybe not completely pivot to uh, operational decarbonization, but, um, but maybe at least be considering it as part of, part of the requirements. Asa, how about you? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Elliot has said. Um, you know, with, with a performance-based approach to emission reductions, you know, like that's going to reward battery storage, uh, which currently, you know, is penalized, you know, with the efficiency metric with the ERI because it uses a little bit of energy, and uh, the ERI, wow. you know, doesn't look at time of use. But with emissions, you're talking about time of use, and there are specific rewards for load shifting, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see us coming up with sophisticated ways to reward both efficiency, you know, cause there are cost reductions in efficiency as well as the emissions reductions. Cause that's really, you know, the brand promise of energy star at the end of the day is cost reductions, emission reductions. Um, you know, and then the other big thing is like, we're going to see like where the industry is at for embodied carbon, yeah. right? So like, hopefully there'll be tools out there. And like, that is like definitely like within the scope of what next gen needs to be. Cause you know, once you tackle operational emissions, like that's going to be the next thing. Um, so we're tracking that really closely. It's, I mean, it's awesome to hear builders, developers, raiders, they see the rules in the checklist. It's just, it's just great to hear the, the thought and consideration that, um, that goes into all this stuff. And it's, uh, yeah, definitely. I'm glad. I, I think it's also easy to get lost in the checklist, right? And, yeah, uh, and, and be kind of focused on these nitty gritty details. And so it's helpful to kind of take a step back 
And, um, you know, we haven't even gotten to this, right? But I mean, it, this is one level bigger than just what's happening in the building industry. I mean, this is an entire economy-wide transition that is just beginning now. And so when you talk about what are we going to be talking about in five years, I think whether you're talking five years or 25 years, we're going to kind of be talking about the same thing, which is moving this giant ship of the entire US economy in every sector, you know, over to thinking about carbon and decar and getting the carbon out. Um, and this is our little corner of the US economy. You know, and what we're trying to do here is is kind of give builders a sneak peek and raiders, you know, uh, some education and some comfort level with these questions, um, to to kind of give them that five year or ten year. Like, if you're not thinking about it now, um, and that's fine. Like, you don't have to do it now, but you should definitely be thinking about it. You know, everybody should be thinking about all of these technologies now, because this is the core of the answer uh, to this giant project that, you know, again, every everybody in the U.S. economy is going to be um, increasingly focused around. Perfect. Yeah. Next generation stuff. Thank you both. We've been chatting for, gosh, yeah, we've been chatting for a full hour, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both very much. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Elliot Neza. There are links to the program information and lots of other stuff that we talked about on the show notes. Go to swinter.com slash podcast to see the show notes. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. We are focused on making buildings better in many ways. Check us out at swinter.com. Check out our careers page if you're looking for opportunities. We have positions in many of many, if not all of our offices in Boston, Connecticut, Manhattan, and Washington, DC. Uh, and thanks to the podcast team here, especially Alex Mirabile, who does the heavy lifting on producing these episodes and editing most of the episodes, including this one. Thanks again for listening. 